Welcome. This is Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast, on which we deal with issues relating to public policy, including science and environmentalism, healthcare, economic policy, the law, and foreign policy. I'm Jordan McGillis. Today I'm sitting down in our Irvine office with my fellow junior fellow, Amanda Maxim. Thanks for being here with me today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So Amanda, as I understand it, you recently interviewed Richard Tren. Can you tell us a little bit about who he is? Yeah, Richard Tren is a director of the organization Africa Fighting Malaria. He's an expert on all things related to malaria, to DDT, to mosquitoes, and to how the, the fight against malaria is going in the world today. Obviously a pretty weighty issue. So um, what makes Mr. Tren unique in this, um, in this fight? What gives him a unique perspective that you want to talk about? Yeah, one of the things that he talks about in the interview is is how he got involved in the fight against malaria, and that's I think one of the things that gives his or that makes his perspective so unique. He tells the story about coming back to to South Africa. That's where he's originally from. That's where he was born in the 1990s, and how um, he saw firsthand a malaria epidemic that was raging at the time, and he saw that the reintroduction of DDT uh, in, that, in the fight against malaria at that time was instrumental in bringing the, the rates of malaria way, way down. And yet at the same time, the Stockholm Convention, which is a UN convention, was going on, and they were railing against the use of DDT. And so he saw that as a, as a real problem and something um, that he wanted to address. And if I can ask you one last question before we get to the interview. Um... How does, how does he think this fight's going? Mr. Trent talks a lot about different ways in which we can, or that we are, in which we can approach the fight against malaria. He talks about the search for a vaccine, obviously the use of, of pesticides such as DDT and how they're, they're instrumental in helping um, to, to rid the world of, of malaria once and for all. But he makes a really interesting point, which is that wealth is really the one thing that that um, that protects people from diseases such as malaria. Mm-hmm. So the wealthier a country gets, and the more, therefore, its um, its citizens have access to the the fruits of industrial of industrialization, such as as health care, such as um, you know air conditioning and 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 nice indoor um, places to to live. Right, and being here in the West, in the wealthiest civilization that's ever existed, it's hard for us to keep in mind at times that there are people dealing with with these things on a daily basis. So it will be interesting to hear this interview and what he has to say on this. Yeah, so he makes the point that wealth is the one thing that's needed um, to get rid of malaria once and for all, and I found that really interesting. All right, let's get to the interview. So I'm joined via Skype today by Mr. Richard Tren, who is a director of the organization Africa Fighting Malaria. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you about your recent Wall Street Journal article, where you discuss a news item that's been hot for a while now, and that's the problem of disappearing honeybees. And there's been a number of theories out uh, in the news over the past few years as to what's been happening with the bees. And now it seems that there's a growing number of people who think that pesticides are the culprit. So I'm wondering if you can explain what's happening with the bees and what the response has been. Yeah, so for for some uh, years, people have been noticing uh, uh, possibly an increase in the disappearances of bees, whole beehives 
um, from from countries, and this is particularly true in the United States and Europe. Uh, and for many years, people have been wondering what has been causing this. For instance, but, but, but just to take a step back, this isn't actually a new thing. That there appears to be an increase in recent years of these these die-offs, but um, disappearances of beehives has been going on for for many years. And in fact, uh, you know, at the turn of the century in Britain. Um, uh, bee experts were noting the disappearances of hives. Uh, so there seems to be um, uh, potentially a problem that is on the increase, but it's not necessarily a new problem. Um, well, so to try and get to the bottom of it, people have been investigating different potential uh, causes, uh, among them uh, the parasites on bees, such as the varroa mite, uh, bee viruses, people also looking at the potential impact of cell phone uh, towers, maybe interrupting or disrupting bees' navigation. Um, and most recently, based on a few studies, uh, people have been, as you, as you mentioned, have been hit on, the, uh, the, um, on insecticides as a potential cause for these bee disappearances. And the idea is that these insecticides that are taken up by bees that are actually contained in the pollen of bees, uh, the pollen that bees um, collect, uh, could undermine their immune systems and therefore lead to whole die-offs and make them less able to resist um, other infections or, you know, uh, or, or uh, problems such as uh, viruses. Um, so that's that's the idea. It, it's it's uh, it's not uncontroversial, of course, because the there are many scientists out there that could, that uh, contend that there isn't enough evidence yet. And one of the things that I explain in the in the in the piece is that we really don't know yet whether or not. Uh, the uh, the insecticides are causing these die-offs um, because there are places such as Australia where they use these insecticides. These new insecticides are called neonicotinoids, um, and they're actually quite ingenious insecticides because instead of being sprayed on crops, they are uh, contained within the seed uh, of a of a crop, so it actually grows up with inside inside the plant and protects the plant from pests. Um, but in, uh, as to get back to this, you know, in Australia, where they use these insecticides, there have been no die-offs. Uh, and in a place like uh, Switzerland, where they don't allow the die-offs, and there are other countries, well, sorry, where they don't allow the insecticide to be used, there have been die-offs. Um, so there's a problem here in that we know that these die-offs have been taking place long before these insecticides were put in place. And we know that uh, these die-offs occur in places where the insecticides aren't, uh, are not being used. So... Uh, there seems to be a problem there. Um, now, now, of course, maybe insecticides do play a role, but we just don't know yet. And um, I was arguing that we just need to be a lot more cautious in just banning an insecticide because doing so would come with, uh, with some considerable costs. Yeah, so in thinking about the, the problem of, of bees, is that something that like, farmers consider when they decide whether or not to use a pesticide? Yeah, I'm sure they do. Um, you know, because bees are bees are incredibly important in uh, in agriculture. It's not just for people like me that that enjoy honey, um, but bees are important in pollinating numerous crops, a lot of fruit crops and nuts, uh, as well as other crops such as sunflower seeds and, and there are others like rapeseed uh, rely on bees to pollinate for pollination, and uh, and I'm sure that you know farmers are uh, very cautious in the way in which they want to use. Uh, these insecticides, any insecticide, uh, taking that into account. But of course, they still have to um, protect the crops from other uh, 
other harmful pests, um, not beneficial pests, uh, not beneficial insects like bees, but uh, but pests. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know many farmers, but the farmers that I do know are quite uh, conscious and, and aware of uh, the way in which they use uh, insecticides and try to protect their crops. So that's interesting, something you said about um, the use of pesticides in agriculture. I think the common view is that maybe pesticides are unnecessary or at best they're kind of seen as a necessary evil. But I want to know, what is your view? I mean, if we stopped using pesticides in agriculture today, what would happen? Well, I think that would be uh, potentially disastrous and and a very foolish um, course to take. Uh, It's only because of modern agricultural um, technologies and and modern agriculture that includes the use of man-made insecticides and pesticides that we're able to produce so much food to to feed uh, the billions of people that inhabit this earth. It's extraordinary that we now produce more food on less land than ever before. Um, You know, the the Malthusian doomsayers um, for for decades have been saying, you know, we're going to Population growth is going to lead to mass starvations. Uh, we're running out of resources, but particularly we're running out of food. Uh, and this is simply not true. And it's not true because of advances in technology. Uh, to take away those technologies uh, will, uh, unfortunately, uh, lead to uh, reductions in crop yields, uh, higher food prices, uh, and less availability of food. Um, now, you know, we could go down a sort of more organic farming route uh, and, you know, people are free to, to, to farm and, uh, in any way they like and people are free to buy whatever kind of food they like. But to, to uh, think that you're going to be saving the planet uh, and improving people's health in doing that is, is totally false. Um, and it's a very dangerous course to take. You know, I've, I've visited... Um, it's particularly dangerous, I think, in poor countries uh, where people's choices are so, um, have far fewer choices. You know, in, in, in Africa, I'm from South Africa and uh, mm-hmm. traveled a lot in Africa. And, you know, I can remember going and visiting a farmer in Uganda and seeing the way that he farmed was in, would be entirely uh, recognizable to people during biblical times. You know, he had no um, access to modern fertilizers or pesticides. He hoed his land with an ox and, a, and an old wooden hoe. Um, some people might find that a sort of romantic image of a rural life in Africa. But the reality is that he was extremely poor. Uh, his children lacked proper nutrition. Yeah. And he would benefit enormously from access to modern technologies that would not only give him more income, but would mean that his children are more likely to have uh, three square meals a day, more likely to attend school. Um, so no, I'm I'm sorry. I, f- I find people that argue against the use of uh, modern technology in agriculture are are essentially misanthropic, and they are happy to uh, to just condemn vast millions of people in poor countries to uh, a life of poverty and, and hunger. Wow. So I want to move from sort of pesticides in agriculture to their use in public health, because you've been an outspoken advocate of for the use of pesticides in both areas. So can you tell me a little bit about your organization, Africa Fighting Malaria, and how you came to dedicate your life to fighting the disease? Um, well, I, uh, like, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm South African, and 
I had um, been out of South Africa for a while and moved back there in the late 1990s at a time when um, a, a UN convention called the Stockholm Convention was being negotiated. And um, I didn't really know very much about insecticides, uh, but I'd heard about DDT. Uh, I had, um, what, I, what I knew about it was that it was uh, a, a dangerous insecticide, and it was probably a good thing it had been banned. But when I was out there, I started reading I'm, with some colleagues, um, started doing some research and reading about the use of DDT in combating malaria. And at the time, South Africa was in the grip of a major malaria epidemic. Um, and that arose primarily because the country stopped using DDT in its malaria control program and changed to a different insecticide to which resistance from the mosquitoes grew very quickly. And um, so South Africa was bringing back DDT and that really opened my eyes to the importance of, uh, of this insecticide, in fact, all insecticides to disease control. Uh, so I visited, um, I wrote a short paper for uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a, a think tank in London, on this issue, and, and in so doing, visited the rural areas and the clinics, and it was my, you know, it was just startling to to see people dying of malaria uh, in South Africa, you know, the most advanced African country, uh, and yet there they were, you know, people sharing beds, lying on the floor. Uh, it was a really terrible um, epidemic, and but. South African government brought back DDT and within a few months the epidemic had stopped and malaria cases came down 80% um, within just a year. So, um, but the UN convention, the Stockholm Convention, was determined to ban the use of DDT entirely for all countries for disease control. And so that experience led me and with my colleagues to set up this organization to, um, to have some sort of vehicle to, to advocate on behalf of those people in rural areas that, that can't advocate for DDT, uh, that aren't in a position to fight uh, this UN and, and the rich countries and the very well-funded environmentalist groups that were campaigning um, for it. If you talk to the average person in America, I know you just mentioned DDT, and if you ask them about DDT, I mean, they typically take the view that DDT is a dangerous chemical. Um, but in, in your answer now, in, in the chapter that you co-authored in the recent book, Silent Spring at 50, you use words like life-saving and remarkable to describe DDT. And I think that may surprise some people. So can you tell us a little bit more about DDT? How does it work? And is it indeed a bad chemical? Um, sure. Well, DDT is, is uh, actually, although it has a, a bad name and it's just been the sort of totemic villain of so many environmentalist groups, it's actually a remarkably benign chemical. I've actually tasted it. Um, there's, uh, there's a famous entomologist, uh, Jay Gordon Edwards, who used to eat a spoonful of it at every lecture that he gave on the topic. And he, he died in his, in his late 80s while hiking in the Rockies. Um, uh, so hardly a, a picture of ill health. Um, but so, so DDT, this, this insecticide, which uh, I wrote a book called The Excellent Powder mm -hmm. with um, uh, my colleague Don Roberts, and it is an excellent powder. It was first synthesized in the 1870s, um, but only really came to use in the 1940s in, uh, during the Second World War when scientists in Switzerland discovered that it had uh, these uh, amazing um, insecticidal properties and long-lasting insecticidal properties. It was, it, it's remarkable in that it's, it was the first a long-lasting uh, insecticide. So you could treat a wall or a surface and the the killing action would remain 
uh, uh, remain active for, for many, many months, even up to a year or perhaps longer. Um, I say the killing action, but the main way in which DDT is used in malaria control is actually is houses, the inside walls of houses are sprayed. Um, and it will kill an insect, uh, a mosquito that lands on the wall, but primarily it works as a, as a repellent. The mosquitoes can detect the tiny molecules of DDT in the air uh, and it drives them away from houses. So essentially what you're doing by spraying DDT on the walls is you're creating a sort of chemical shield around the house. And since the 1940s, that, that mode of action, that, that method of malaria control has uh, saved uh, hundreds of millions of people from malaria. Um, of course, it, was, it is an insecticide and it will kill insects. And so that was when it was started to be used in agriculture uh, after the Second World War. And it's, th it's that use, that widespread use that um, earned DDT its, uh, its um, bad name from uh, primarily initially from Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, uh, but from many others who uh, began attacking the use of the, of the insecticide. Um, you know, and, and Rachel Carson claimed that it, it would cause uh, cancer in humans and all, had all sorts of deleterious effects uh, to, to wildlife. The reality is uh, uh, that when you, when you actually look at the evidence that this is actually a remarkably benign insecticide um, and uh, it, it really did not have the effect on wildlife that uh, the people thought it would have. And the, um, it's, it's, it's remarkably non, non, not harmful to humans. It's, the, the remarkable thing is that DDT is probably one of the most studied chemicals uh, or synthetic man-made chemicals that we have since the 1940s. I mean, thousands upon thousands of studies have been conducted into DDT, looking at potential harm uh, caused by DDT to human health. In all those years, in the, in the six decades or more, and in the thousands of studies, not a single study is able to comply with the most basic epidemiologic criteria uh, required to prove a cause and effect relationship. What you have are thousands of studies that find uh, that are, are weak, that find either very weak or no, no correlation with uh, harm to human health, or that are contradictory and or unreplicated. And so you have lots of people making claims, but no one actually can prove that DDT causes any harm to human health. And you'd think by now, if it really was harmful, we would have definitive proof. Mm. Um, we don't. That what's, what's amazing is that people um, seem to think that the mere fact that there have been so many studies out there proves something, proves that it must be harmful. Mm. Well, in fact, all it proves is that there are millions of dollars from foundations and largely from the US government and others that's available for people to study it. Uh, it's, a, it's a measurement of, the, of the, the, the huge amount of funding into DDT research rather than any, uh, um, any proof of harm. So you mentioned uh, Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, and that book was written in the 1960s. And I'm wondering, did Rachel Carson know about the, the life-saving properties that DDT has? Um, it's inconceivable that she didn't know. Um, she doesn't really write about it in her book. Um, but uh, she must have known because it was um, in, it was written about. It was it was the most. If, if you're writing about a chemical, the main and 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 its first use uh, is in um, is in disease prevention, not just against malaria, but against diseases like typhus, 
um, and it was used to protect people in the United States against yellow fever and dengue, as well as malaria um, and plague. Uh, it's inconceivable that she didn't know, um, but she chose not to write about it. Mm. You know, she, she doesn't, she never um, wanted to stop the use of DDT in disease control. She didn't argue for that. Um, the end result was that is to a very large extent what happened. Um, she was mostly concerned about its use in agriculture and in, and in households. I want to go back to something you said about the mosquitoes and how they are repelled from coming into the inside of your if of your house if you have DDTs right on the walls. And I'm so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about why that's effective. I mean, what is so what is the disease malaria and how is it spread? Um, okay, so malaria is a it's a parasitic disease and uh, it's um, transmitted by the female Anopheles mosquito and the the, the, the mosquito, the female mosquito, needs blood in order to, uh, to lay eggs and, and for those eggs to develop. And so there are, you know, there are hundreds of different species of Anopheles mosquitoes. Um, the, the most effective uh, transmitters of the disease are those mosquitoes who have evolved to, to seek out human uh, blood inside houses. And that's unfortunately the reason, one of the reasons that malaria is so prevalent and so um, bad in Africa is because the mosquitoes that you get there tend to seek out human blood uh, at night when people are asleep. That's how they've evolved. We have plenty of Anopheles mosquitoes in the United States, but they tend to be less efficient transmitters of the disease because they will also feed on dogs and cats and pigs and other animals. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's just that's a sidebar. Um, so the, it's a disease transmitted, as I said, by, by the mosquito. The parasite develops inside the mosquito to a certain stage. And then uh, she doesn't, the, the mosquito, when feeds on a human, uh, injects the parasites in with her saliva. This, she's not intending to do this. This is, uh, uh, she, um, she's an unwitting transmitter of the disease, but uh, a, a deadly one nevertheless. And so the, 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 the parasite then continues its life cycle within humans and um, will, it causes uh, disease. It, it, it infects the, the, the parasites move to the liver where they um, uh, develop for about 10 days to two weeks and then they're released into the bloodstream. And when that happens, the person becomes extremely ill. The um, parasites infect blood cells and they replicate very rapidly. And it's, it's at that stage where someone starts to feel very ill um, and can die because the, it destroys blood cells. And what will often happen is the, you know, the, there are so many destroyed blood cells and so many parasites in the bloodstream that it will actually um, affect the um, flow of blood to the brain and to other organs and cause, uh, cause death. And can cause death very quickly, particularly in children. How serious is is the problem of malaria? Well, I mean, what countries are currently battling the disease? Um, well, you know, it used to be a global disease, including most of the United States. Well, not not most, but large parts of the United States and Europe. Um, the, the, at the moment, most malaria deaths occur in Africa. Around ninety percent of the malaria deaths, and you know, there's over a, um, a million deaths a year, uh, or around a million deaths a year. We, data are a bit uncertain. Uh, there's also, it's high, highly prevalent in India and Southeast Asia, 
and parts of Latin America. Um, although Latin America seems to have a better handle on it, they seem to have a less, mostly have a, a less deadly form of malaria. There are different types of malaria. There's four different types of malaria. The worst type of malaria and the most efficient transmitters of the disease are, are found in Africa. But like I say, India and um, Southeast Asia also have very bad incidence of disease as well. I'm interested in what you said about the United States. I've recently read that George Washington, the first president of the United States, had malaria, and apparently he wasn't the only United States president or public figure to have the disease. And I hadn't really considered that the United States was a malarial country. Um, so can you tell me, how was malaria eradicated in the United States? Well, um, you, you know, malaria in the U.S., had, it, it was extremely bad. Um, it was not just malaria, but yellow, I mentioned before, yellow fever was highly prevalent here. Um, as the United States began to develop as um, malarial wetlands, what used to be called swamps, what we now call wetlands, were dried up, uh, mosquito breeding areas began, um, began to decline. And there was a gradual reduction in the um, burden of the disease as the country became more developed and, and more prosperous. The disease was finally eradicated using DDT in the, after the Second World War. Um, and thousands of houses, across, mostly across the South, were sprayed, and, it, and it, it very quickly eradicated the disease. The disease remains eradicated from the United States and really halts at the border with Mexico, um, although even Mexico has very few cases, um, but does have other diseases like dengue. But it remains gone mostly because the United States became wealthy. Um, and it's the, it's the United States' wealth that allows people to afford houses with proper windows and glass, with air conditioning in their offices, at home, and in their cars that creates a physical barrier between people and mosquitoes. Um, now, th and that's one of the reasons that uh, malaria has never really made a comeback here and is unlikely to. Um, you get a lot, of, uh, a lot of global warming alarmists claim that malaria is gonna come back here. That's very unlikely, um, uh, but it's essentially this country's wealth. And you, the interesting thing is you see this in other places too. Malaria was eradicated from Taiwan, from Mauritius, um, and remains gone in those cases, again, with because of DDT spraying. Um, but Taiwan and Mauritius became so wealthy so quickly because of economic freedom, this is my personal opinion, um, that uh, it, it, it remains eradicated. You look at another, you know, other islands like, um, you know, like Haiti, where you could eradicate it, diseases like malaria remain a problem there um, because of poverty. I think DDT was banned in the United States in the 70s, and I want to know what, what led to the ban. So it was helpful in eradicating malaria in this country, and then we went and banned it. And I'm wondering why or what led to the ban? Um, that's a, it's a, it's a long story uh, and, and began in very large part with, with Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, um, which started a whole movement against DDT and against man-made insecticides um, and chemicals and to, to, if, you, if you believe Al Gore, uh, really started the whole environmentalist movement. Um, that, so that book was published in 62. There was growing pressure uh, against the use of DDT um, from groups such as the Environmental Defense Fund, which launched various legal attacks against the use of DDT and culminated in, in the 19, early 1970s under the Nixon administration, which, formed, which created the uh, um, Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, so Nixon created the EPA, and the very first uh, action that they took uh, under, the, uh, under the direction of, the, uh, of Nixon um, and, and his administration was to um, investigate DDT. 
they held a hearing that went on for about eight months uh, where scientists presented evidence for and against. Uh, the result was that the presiding uh, judge that, that heard the evidence concluded that there was no evidence that DDT should be, um, should be banned, and uh, he ruled that it should remain available, but he was overruled by the first administrator of the EPA, um, which in, in what was really a, a political decision, given that he ignored all the scientific evidence, and he went ahead and banned it anyway. And, you know, you can look at the EPA since then and, and see that they have remained true to that political and sort of activist tradition, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the, in the last few years under the Obama administration. Um, so, you know, they're just carrying on a, a, a long tradition there. But so this was, um, it was many years in the making. Uh, it, was, it came after many well-funded uh, advocacy programs against EDT and uh, so it had um, it, it occurred because of the, the politics were favourable, and you know to, to to some extent, some companies that were producing DDT um, did uh, oppose the ban. But for many, DDT was not a profitable product. The uh, original patent holders, which was a company in Switzerland called Geigy, um, now part of Novartis, never. Uh, uh, never uh, enforced the, the patent. They thought that this was a life-saving product that should be available uh, freely. Uh, and so, you know, for many of the companies that manufactured it, you know, they didn't complain that much because they wanted to sell some of their other patented, more expensive products. And so the the defense of DDT from, from industry was very milk toast. It really fell down to some uh, entomologists uh, and disease control experts to do that, and I'm afraid they lost. I want to talk about the consequence of the ban on DDT, because I've heard the argument that the ban in this country doesn't really affect the rest of the world, since you know the rest of the world is still more than welcome to continue using DDT. So I'm wondering what your take is on that. Does the ban here have an effect on the use of DDT in the rest of the world? Um, it, it, it does. I mean, it's, it's a convenient arg- argument for people that disagree with me to say, well, you know, just because the U.S. bans it doesn't mean that another country can't use it. And they're right up to a point, except if you look at the, um, the minutes of meetings of the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body of the, the World Health Organization, it's very clear from the, from the 1970s onwards um, that uh, countries start, com- start complaining about the inability of accessing DDT. One country after another, one wealthy country after another, started banning its use and shutting down production, and that reduced supply. It rose, you know, prices began to rise, um, and it was more difficult to, to to access. But it wasn't just that; it was, you know, uh, it was the ongoing pressure from wealthy countries, from the United States, from Canada, European countries, from Scandinavia, on poor countries to stop the use of insecticides. And you know, the record is very clear on this, that these governments had just taken an unfavorable, unfavorable view of the insecticide. Um, and it culminates in, ni- in 1997. Uh, th- so this is going on for many years, you know, constantly raising, constantly trying to stop countries from using insecticides. And then in 1997, the World Health, Organization, the World Health um, Assembly passed a resolution calling for all countries to stop their reliance on uh, DDT and other insecticides in malaria control, um, which is really an extraordinary uh, resolution. 
given that there's no evidence that you can control these diseases without insecticides. You know, it would be like saying, you know, in cancer treatment, countries should stop uh, the re their reliance on chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Uh, why? Well, because, you know, radio, there's potential harm from, from these chemicals or potential harm from uh, radiotherapy, which is true. But, you know, there'd be no reason to stop it. People, people rightly recognize uh, that um, radiotherapy is necessary in cancer control. But, you know, such is, the, uh, such is the politics uh, that that didn't hold sway in, um, in disease control, in, in a disease like malaria that affects poor countries. Is malaria a disease we could fight without pesticides? I mean, if someone found some other way to do it? To be clear, I, you know, we, 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 we support the use of insecticides, but, we, you know, we, we need good treatment as well, proper diagnosis, mm -hmm. um, and the use of bed nets that, that include insecticides. These, these, are, these are the nets that children and adults are, are encouraged to sleep under. Those are treated with insecticides. We, we need multiple, um, uh, uh, multi-pronged attack against uh, the disease. Uh, vaccines, you know, a vaccine is, you know, would be would be great to have, but it's been a constant disappointment. Um, and a, a vaccine for malaria has been seven years away for the last thirty years. About, you know, it's always just on the horizon. It's it's an incredibly complex uh, thing to create as a, a vaccine against a parasite. A vaccine against a, a virus is one thing. It's a much more simple thing to to create. But a, a, you know, the parasite is is a far more complex genome. And to create a vaccine against that has proved uh, elusive. Hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent by governments and foundations like the Gates Foundation looking into it. But, you know, we're, we're really uh, a long way away from, from finding uh, an effective one. So I'm, I'm giving a, a long answer to your, to your question. You know, what, what do we need for, to control malaria? Well, we need all of these things. Uh, we, we don't have a vaccine yet. We really need to improve treatment, uh, improve the use of insecticides and, and malaria control. You know, ultimately, I come back to the point that I made earlier. W what we need is for um, malarial countries that at the moment are, are all mostly poor countries to, we need those countries to become wealthier. Mm -hmm. uh, we need them to, um, to start growing their economies. And this is happening. And we're seeing this in Africa. You're seeing really quite extraordinary, impressive economic growth in countries like Tanzania and Ghana. Um, and along with that comes the development and an ability to sustain um, malaria control. So in the long run, um, that's what we need to, to control the disease. In the interim, we need to keep, keep funding these programs. The United States provides uh, most of the funding for malaria control programs either bilaterally or through multilateral programs. That's good. Uh, the United States, uh, the people of the United States are, are immensely generous uh, and are mostly happy to do that. But, you know, most malarial countries in Africa have their own resources that they could use uh, to, to improving the fight. They choose not to. Um, a danger with the foreign aid is that it stops those countries from spending their own resources and it stops countries from creating sustainable programs. So hopefully we'll see um, a transition to more local funding of malaria, particularly in, in poor countries. Um, you know, for instance, India has a major malaria burden. India also has a space program. Uh, you know, if they can find the billions of dollars that they want to, to send an Indian into space, um, maybe they can find the money to provide um, 
medicines to, in, to Indian children that cost less than a dollar. So I wonder if you can give me a little bit more of a picture as to the, the money that's spent on combating malaria. Where does the majority of the money go and is that where it should go? The majority of the money at the moment goes uh, to funding programs. So for instance, for the United States, the, um, the, the, the lead malaria program, the President's Malaria Initiative, um, I think has now sp- spent about one and a half billion dollars over the last six or seven years. Um, I stand to be corrected there. Most of it has gone to building up programs to, to delivering bed nets, uh, to spraying houses, and to uh, providing people with diagnosis and treatment. And that's actually a remarkably successful program. Wherever um, the US, US bilateral program works, um, uh, you're seeing some really f- impressive reductions in uh, disease because you know they're tackling it from all angles and they're making sure not only not only is there proper control but also effective diagnosis and treatment um, and that seems to be a very sensible uh, use of of resources um, unfortunately some other programs funded by the um, the uh, eu governments um, tend to fund a lot of sort of conferences and capacity building, things rather sort of nebulous line items that you really can't track any, any metrics. And uh, that, that can be a problem. Um, the, the global fund for uh, AIDS, TB and malaria is a, is a major malaria, funder of malaria programs. And, and to, to, by and large, they, you know, they are, they're putting money into bed nets and treatment, very little into indoor spraying with insecticides such as DDT, but there are others. Um, and that's, that remains a bit of a frustration. Um, but I, you know, I think the days in which the United States and other countries primarily supported malaria control by hosting a conference of, in, in a poor country in the Hilton in Nairobi, for instance, are over, uh, and which is what used to happen. Um, you know, the, the sort of the aid industrial complex, as we like to call it, um, was very good at spending taxpayers' money, doing not very much and not measuring anything. Those days are over. In the last few years, the fight against malaria has improved greatly. So I want to ask you about DDT in, in particular. Where is it being used today? Is it still being used in the fight against malaria? Uh, it is. Uh, and the, the biggest user at the moment is, um, is India. Uh, they are the, the, the last manufacturer of 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 DDT, and um, they they have a government-owned factory called Hindustan Insecticides, that is the you know the only I said the the last manufacturer, and they um, I think they used the most in 2011. I think they they it was about six million kilograms that they used. Now you can figure out how many tons that is. Is it six thousand? It's about six thousand tons mm-hmm. um, that uh, was used in India. Other countries that use it, um, South Africa uses quite a, quite a lot, about 62 tons in its malaria control program in 2011. Um, uh, it, some is used in, in Zambia, in Eritrea, Swaziland, Mozambique, um, Botswana, Namibia. They uh, use, so you have this cluster of, of southern African countries around South Africa that use it and up in the north in Eritrea. And India; those are the countries that are most using it um, now. So it's dwindled greatly. 
Um, and to, you know, I know just from my conversations with many people in, in malaria control programs that many, many countries would like to use it. They'd like to have it as part of their arsenal because they recognize that they need to, to, to mix up uh, insecticides, to change them around because that helps to control um, the development of resistance. Uh, but many will not use it uh, because of the, um, the stigma of using DDT. Uh, for instance, Uganda, funded by the United States, uh, used DDT very effectively for one year. But that program was shut down because uh, the producers, of the agricultural producers in that country, um, were so worried that all their produce would be shut out of the European Union yeah. because of the use of DDT in disease control. Uh, that it shut down the program. I mean, it's, it's, uh, this is you know, infuriating to me because the one activity involves spraying tiny amounts of DDT inside houses. This is not an agricultural use of the, of the uh, insecticide. It wasn't sprayed on, on land. It wasn't sprayed on any crops. Um, and yet the, the fear that the tiniest residues would uh, uh, lead to a, a trade boycott from Europe shut that program down. It's really a disgraceful episode. Mm. But, that, but that has affected the, the other countries from wanting to use it. One of the arguments that I've heard against using DDT is something that you mentioned, which is the issue of resistance. And I've heard that many species of insects, including the mosquitoes that transmit malaria, have become or developed at least some resistance to DDT. So I was wondering if you can explain what that means and why it happens. And does that mean we shouldn't use DDT? Um, yeah, well, that... Um, that's it's an issue. Resistance is uh, a problem uh, in in some countries, uh, and it, resistance did develop early on in the years that DDT was used, um, and mostly because it wasn't not from its use in malaria control, but from its use in agriculture. Um, when when it's used in agriculture, malaria the, the DDT was sprayed on on crops and uh, on wetlands and all over the place, and uh, the mosquito larvae came across the uh, across DDT everywhere, and many died, but some developed genetic, genetic mutations that allowed it to resist uh, the effects of DDT. And those genes passed on, and, the, and you, what you developed was resistant insecticides. Uh, re, sorry, resistant mosquitoes. When DDT was sprayed inside houses, almost all of the mosquitoes are repelled. They don't even come into contact with it, uh, and so they. If they're not dying off, they're just being pushed away, then there's no opportunity for them to develop resistance. So um, the problem was really agricultural use, not public health use. Uh, and even where we see resistance to DDT's killing actions, where, where DDT no longer kills the mosquitoes, um, it is still remarkably effective because it keeps them out of houses, because of that repellency effect. Mm -hmm. um, but... You know, I don't want to diminish uh, the importance of resistance to other insecticides. Like, there are other classes of insecticides that can be used. Resistance is a much, much more problematic um, issue. And uh, it, like I mentioned before, when I was talking about South Africa in the late 1990s, that whole uh, that that issue arose because of resistance to the pyrethroid class of insecticide, a different class. Um, and in those cases, what you want is to have an alternative to, to bring in, uh, to, to, to swap one insecticide class with another and wipe out that resistant gene. Now, you can only do that if you have 
uh, alternative insecticides available. Um, unfortunately, because of, I think primarily because of anti-insecticide campaigns and because of the um, growing regulatory burdens to developing insecticides, um, just as there have been you know, growing regulatory burdens to developing drugs, um, you, uh, we've seen hardly any investment in new insecticides for public health. There hasn't been a new class for around 30 years. Mm. Uh, and this is worrying. You know? So here's the, you know, the irony is that you know, Rachel Carson campaigned against the use of DDT. But her campaign led to dampening of research into, into new insecticides. And the result is that countries are still reliant on DDT, still reliant on the insecticide that she, that she campaigned against, precisely because of the campaigns that she launched. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's worrying. You know, the malaria control scientists don't use DDT because they are lazy or just can't be bothered to think of something new. They do it out of necessity, and they would love to have new, new insecticides and new choices, but we just don't have them. So along those lines, one thing I wanted to ask you about is the case of Sri Lanka. I was looking at the, the numbers, and it seems like in the 1940s, before DDT started, or the spraying program started, that there was something like two and a half million cases of, of malaria. And then after the large-scale DDT program started, the cases went down to just 17 in 1963. Uh, spraying stopped there in 1964, uh, and so by 1969, they're back up to two and a half million cases. And I've heard arguments on both sides of this. Some people argue that malaria returned because of the cessation of the use of DDT. Others say that DDT became ineffective and that's why people stopped using it there. So I'm wondering if you can tell, tell me what's the real story in Sri Lanka? Well, um, it's, it, it probably is a bit complex. Uh, I, I think it's certainly the withdrawal of DDT from the program there um, would have led to a rise in malaria cases. Uh, you've seen this, and because it's not just in malaria and in Sri Lanka that you see this. You see this in Latin America. You see this in Africa. So um, you know there's enough evidence out there that when you withdraw DDT and 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 or other insecticides from a disease control program, you're going to see a rise in um, the uh, in, in 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 incidence. Um, but it wasn't it, you know it wasn't just uh, uh, the the banning of DDT in the in the United States that that led to that problem um, because the running a malaria control program like they, were, like they were doing in Sri Lanka and also in India is expensive and it's time consuming and it requires uh, a real commitment from the local governments to put money into it. And I think that what they realized was that you could, they kind of took their, their eye off the ball. Um, now they could have perhaps started using different insecticides from DDT but, uh, you know, I think that they didn't really realize how quickly malaria could come back in a country like Sri Lanka that was still very poor, unlike the United States where people were wealthy and could, like I mentioned before, have air conditioning. Uh, in places like Sri Lanka and Africa, um, this disease will come back very quickly if you stop funding uh, the programs. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating for government-controlled funding of this. That happens to be the way it was done. The, you know, there are different models. Um, but, the, you know, the reality is that um, the, it, it wasn't just removing DDT. It was just stopping funding the, in the whole program um, altogether. Uh, they relied on donor funds, but also their own funding uh, dried up. 
Um, so, you know, so, but like I said, you see, you see the same examples of this in, in Brazil, in Peru, uh, in Ecuador, uh, as well as in parts of Africa. What needs to be done to get rid of malaria once and for all? Well, you know, we need, uh, we need all these tools. Uh, we need, ultimately, it'd be great to have a vaccine that really works. Um, I don't think we're going to get there, probably not even in my lifetime, but hopefully. Um, but, you know, that would be, that would be outstanding, uh, an effective vaccine. Um, but until we get that, we need to, to, to make sure that we're spraying houses with insecticides, uh, providing people with bed nets and making sure that they actually use them, uh, uh, getting effective treatments out there. There are effective malaria treatments uh, and diagnosing them. But ultimately, I'll come back to the point that I made before. Ultimately, um, countries need to start getting wealthy. Uh, and they, I, they are doing that. Um, uh, not enough and not fast enough. Uh, and for every success story at the moment, like Ghana or Tanzania, there's a Zimbabwe or a Somalia or a Democratic Republic of Congo that's going backwards. Um, so we need, uh, you know, we need to encourage countries to uh, adopt uh, f free, open, free markets and open economies. Uh, and that ultimately will lift people out of poverty. Uh, and malaria is a disease of poverty. And even if you... Um, you know, you can have, not only does that wealth allow, give the government resources to run a public health program, but it gives individuals uh, their own ability to protect themselves and seek treatment when they get sick. Uh, and, and that's ultimately the answer. Where can our listeners learn more about your organization? Uh, well, we have a website at www.fightingmalaria.org. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of resources up there. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. This episode with host Amanda Maxim and guest Richard Tren is titled The Fight Against Malaria. Richard Tren is the co-author of the book The Excellent Powder, DDT's Political and Scientific History. Please visit www.theexcellentpowder.org for more information and an excerpt from the book. You can keep up to date with Richard Tran's organization, Africa Fighting Malaria, at www.fightingmalaria.org. Information and episodes of this podcast are available on the Voices for Reason blog at blog.einrandcenter.org or on iTunes. You can find more information about Ayn Rand and her ideas on the web at einrand.org. I'm Jordan McGillis for Eye to Eye.